Section 1 of An Interpretation of Keats in Dimion by Henry Clement Notcutt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 1 The Story The story, so far as it is developed in the first book, falls into two clearly marked divisions. The first of these, covering about one-third of the total length of the book, line 63 to 393, describes the festival of Pan. The second, lines 393 to 992, deals with the strange experiences which have changed the life of Endymion. It will be convenient to consider these separately. The Festival of Pan It is on the side of Mount Latmos, near the western coast of Asia Minor, that the festival is about to be held. On the slopes of the mountain lay a dense forest, into some parts of which no man had penetrated. Line 67. Sometimes a lamb, straying away from the flock to which it belonged, would be lost in the depths of the forest, but it was believed that such a lamb would be shielded from harm until it joined the herds of Pan, and that the shepherd who had lost it would gain thereby. Line 78. There were many paths in the forest leading to a wide lawn, in the midst of which stood an altar, line 90. To this spot, early in the morning of a summer day, a troop of children came and gathered round the altar, and, as they stood expectant, a faint breath of music came to their ears, line 114. Soon there appeared a troop of maidens and of shepherds, then a venerable priest, followed by more shepherds, and a joyous multitude, accompanying a chariot drawn by three steeds, in which rode Endymion, their prince. They were gathered round the shrine, while the priest exhorted them to join in giving thanks to Pan for all the benefits they had received. After sacrifice and libation, a hymn to Pan was sung, line 232, and then many of those present joined in dancing and sports, while others allowed their minds to dwell on thoughts and images called up by what was going on around them, and as they played, or meditated, the sun arose in all his glory. Line 350. On one side sat a group of old men, who were talking with one another about the next life, the duties that lay before them, and the hopes of reunion with those they had loved. The Meaning It may be admitted, at the outset, that this earlier part of the first book is not the most hopeful part of the poem in which to attempt the tracing of the allegory. As an introduction to the story, it is simple and effective, but indications that would point out the purpose beneath the surface of the narrative are not easy to find. By making use, however, of clues to be found in later parts of the poem, we can arrive at a fair degree of certainty as to the intention of this earlier part. A widespread poetic feeling. It appears, then, that we have here shown to us, in the manner of a picture, the feeling that was abroad among men at the time when the new romantic movement began to exercise its influence. It is not only in the mind of the poet that such a movement stirs and grows. There must be a stirring, too, in the minds of many others who will never be poets, and they must be ready to share in the new ideas and emotions in such degree as they are capable of. For some time past, men had paid little heed to the beauty of the world around them. As Wordsworth had put it when Keats was twelve years old, 
Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours, and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. And it was a true charge that the old priest made when he said, Our vows are wanting to our great god Pan. Line 213 But a change was coming over the minds of men. They were tired of the wrangling and the strife, the insincere compliment and the bitter jibe that made up so large a part of what poets had for a long time been saying to them. They were eager to respond to Wordsworth's invitation. Come forth into the light of things, let nature be your teacher. They were ready to join in the desire that this new spirit of delight in and wonder at all that is beautiful and mysterious in nature might spread among mankind. They could sing. Be still the leaven that, spreading in this dull and clodded earth, gives it a touch ethereal, a new birth. Be still a symbol of immensity, a firmament reflected in a sea. Line 296 The main purpose of this opening part of the story is to show the new movement as one that was shared by many people, young and old, men, women and children were alike stirred by it, and the suggestion at the back of the story is that the change that came about in the world of poetry at this time was not merely the result of new ideas and a fresh outlook on the part of the poets, it was the expression of a spiritual change that had taken place in the minds of large numbers of people. The revelation had come to the poet, as we shall see, in a way that was intimate and personal, and no one else could directly share in it, but there were many who, though quite unable to receive such a revelation as had come to him, still felt the throbbing of new impulses and shared in the new joy. The Altar and the Lawn the revival of the worship of Pan stands for the fresh interest in and love of nature which were widely diffused at the time of the poetic revival, and bearing this in mind, a further significance may be recognised in some of the details of the story. It will be remembered that a marble altar, line 90, stood in the middle of the wide lawn, line 82, where this festival took place and that there were many paths leading through the forest to this spot. It would appear that Keats intended to remind us that reverence for nature is no new thing. This part of the great domain of poetry had been opened up long before many paths led to it, and had been trodden by worshippers in earlier times. The altar that they had built, though it had been neglected for some time, still stood there, ready for the worshippers when they were willing to gather round it. It may be noted, too, that it was before sunrise that the multitude came together to renew their vows to Pan, and then, from the horizon's vaulted side, there shot a golden splendour far and wide, spangling those million poutings of the brine with quivering awe. T'was even an awful shrine from the exaltation of Apollo's bow, a heavenly beacon in their dreary woe. Line 349. So the beginning of the freshly awakened interest in nature, as may be seen in the poems of Thompson and Collins and Gray, 
showed itself before the sunshine splendour of the new movement as it shone forth in the time of Wordsworth and Coleridge. It is difficult, if not impossible, to mark with accuracy the limits of significance intended by the poet in the details of his allegory. One cannot, for instance, be certain whether or not he meant the mighty forest outspread upon the sides of Latmos to represent the realm of poetry as a whole, and the gloomy shades sequestered deep where no man went, line 67, to stand for some portions of that realm which Keats thought of as still remaining to be occupied, themes or aspects of life which were awaiting the poet of the future, in contrast with the lawn into which many paths led, and where stood the altar to Pan, at which many poets had sacrificed. But there are a few lines, not in the main current of the story, in which we shall probably not be far wrong in recognising a partly personal reminiscence, also aside from the direct line of the allegory. The Strayed Lambs They refer to the lamb that sometimes strayed far down those inmost glens, line 69, and never returned to join the flocks, but passed unworried by angry wolf or parred with prying head, until it came to some unfooted plains where fed the herds of Pan. Aye, great his gains, who thus one lamb did lose. Line 75 It seems likely that Keats was thinking of the fate of some of his own poems. There were many lambs in the white flock of his first published volume that had been worried by the angry wolves or pards with prying head, who howled in the pages of the Eclectic Review and other periodicals at Lee Hunt and all who were suspected of being his friends. But there were other poems that he did not publish. Some, perhaps, had not even been put into writing, and these were never, in his lifetime at any rate, gathered into the pens that held the main flock. Keats, regarding them in a way with which Browning would have fully sympathised, felt that these poems had not perished, but had joined the herds of Pan, and that the gain to him was great, for they lived on in his mind as beautiful ideals, unmarred by foolish or unfriendly criticism. There is, of course, no need to suppose that Keats intended to limit the application of the parable to his own experience. Many a poet must have had a similar feeling about his unpublished poems. Endymion's Experiences Thus far we have followed the story of the Festival of Pan. It remains to consider the latter part of the first book, which tells of the experiences through which Endymion had passed, and which had caused such a marked change in his demeanour. In earlier days he had been foremost in all active exercises, but now he seemed to be oppressed by some secret grief, and could not join in the festivities of the day. Line 393. His sister Piona drew him from the crowd, and took him to a quiet retreat, where, under her restful influence, he fell asleep. Line 442. When he awoke, refreshed, and grateful for her sisterly affection, he told her the cause of the change that had come upon him. He had seen a vision of surpassing loveliness, line 572, and, though it was but a dream, and had passed away, leaving him desolate, it had been followed by a second appearance of the same bright face, mirrored in a clear well, 
line 895. This was no dream, for he saw it with waking eyes, but it, too, had quickly vanished. Finally, as he was one day following the course of a stream, he had reached a quiet and beautiful cave, line 935, and, as he longed, with a great longing for the presence of the unknown goddess, whom he had come to love so deeply, he heard her voice calling him, and realised that she was with him once more. But those moments had quickly fled, and feeling now the hopelessness of his passion, he declared that he would put his grief aside and return to a quiet and wholesome life. Keats' Early Interests In this part of the story, it is not difficult to trace Keats' own reminiscences of the way in which there gradually grew up within him the conviction that he must devote himself to the pursuit of poetry, until that became at length the one absorbing passion of his life. Endymion's days, as he himself tells us, had until recently been marked by healthy activity. He was full of energy and delighted in manly exercises. He was one who, for very sport of heart, would race with his own steed from Araby, pluck down a vulture from his towery perching, frown a lion into growling. Line 533. And Keats, according to the account of his school friends, showed a similar disposition in his early days. One of them, Mr. Edward Holmes, has left the following record. Keats was in childhood not attached to books. His penchant was for fighting. He would fight anyone, morning, noon and night, his brother among the rest. It was meat and drink to him. He was not literary. His love of work and poetry manifested itself chiefly about the year before he left school. In all active exercises, he excelled. But a change had come over Endymion. He no longer took any interest in the manly sports that had hitherto been his chief delight. He had lost all his toil-breeding fire, line 537, and at times he became oblivious of all that was going on around him. He did not heed the sudden silence, or the whispers low, or the old eyes dissolving at his woe, or anxious calls, or close of trembling palms, or maiden sigh that grief itself embalms. But in the selfsame fixed trance he kept, like one who on the earth had never stepped. Line 398 His love of poetry awakened. So Keats pictures to us the change that comes over a man's outlook on life when once he has heard the call to devote himself to the pursuit of poetry. Hitherto he has led a life, not differing in any marked way from the life of his fellows. He has joined in the same pursuits and has shared in their interests and pleasures. But when once he has caught a glimpse of an ideal loftier and more beautiful than anything that has hitherto entered into his conception of life, he cannot go on as before. The old pursuits and pleasures seem empty and meaningless. He becomes absorbed in the contemplation of the new ideal. It fascinates him and alters his whole attitude to life. Endymion speaks of the change wrought suddenly in me, line 520, and though it is not for a long time that he fully makes up his mind to devote himself to the pursuit of the new ideal, it is clear that Keats intends us to think of the experience 
that resulted in the new outlook upon life as having taken place on some definite and identifiable occasion. His Isolation It may further be noted that the experience is a rare one. Not many men are called to be poets, and in the story it is Endymion alone of all the people who sees the vision and hears the call. For the most part, the people around him are quite unable to enter into his feelings, though there are a few of more sympathetic understanding, who are able to share a little in them. He seemed, to common lookers-on, like one who dreamed of idleness in groves Elysian. But there were some who feelingly could scan a lurking trouble in his nether lip, and see that oftentimes the reins would slip through his forgotten hands. Then would they sigh, and think of yellow leaves, of owlets cry, of logs piled solemnly. Line 175 This isolation of the poet, the solitariness of the path that he has to follow through life, is a point frequently insisted upon in the allegory. It is a pathetic illustration of the limited degree of sympathetic understanding with which the poet must expect to meet, that when Keats read to Wordsworth this beautiful hymn to Pan, a crystal vase containing as a distilled essence the very flower of Wordsworth's own teaching, all the comment that he passed upon it seems to have been that it was a pretty piece of paganism. Wordsworth, who had himself declared that he would rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn, if only his eyes and ears might be open to the beauty and mystery of the world around him. If this was all the appreciation that Wordsworth had to offer, it seems unreasonable to speak severely of the obtuseness of later critics, and even a quarterly reviewer should be pitied rather than blamed. The Threefold Revelation The story of the threefold revelation that was granted to Endymion is skilfully worked out. It is obviously intended to represent the growth in a man's mind of the consciousness that he is called to be a poet. It may be true that the poet is born, not made, but, at any rate, he is not conscious of the fact when he is born, nor for some time after. He may arrive at the consciousness in various ways, but Keats represents it here as coming to him, first of all, on a few definite occasions, and in such a way that, from the time when the idea first dawned upon him, his whole outlook upon life was changed, even though some considerable time went by before he finally made up his mind to devote his life to this one purpose. There are four aspects of this part of the story that appear to be specially significant, and these may now be considered. The first vision in a familiar spot. 1. In the first place it will be noticed that some stress is laid on the fact that when the new revelation came to Endymion, he was in a place that he had often been accustomed to visit. On the first occasion, he was on the border of a wood, where the river winds round it, and there he had made his way to a nook, where he had been used to pass his weary eaves, line 546, and from which he had often watched the beauty of sunset. And it was here, heralded by the sudden blossoming of a magic bed of flowers, that the vision came to him. The second. In the account of the second revelation, this feature of the story is dwelt upon at greater length. It was in a deep hollow, overarched by bushes and trees, where some moulded steps 
led down to the margin of a well. Line 870. From there he had often brought flowers to Peona. There, too, he would bubble up the water through a reed, or make ships. Of malted feathers, touchwood, alder chips, with leaves stuck in them, and the Neptune bee of their petty ocean. Line 882. When, in a less childish mood, he often sat there, contemplating the figures wild, of o'erhead clouds melting the mirror through. Line 886. It may be regarded as one of the canons in the interpretation of allegory that if apparently disproportionate stress is laid upon any aspect of the story, there is probably enshrined in it something of special significance in the allegory. In a carelessly constructed allegory, this will not, of course, hold good. But the more one examines this poem, the more evidence one finds that the thinking has been close and consecutive, and that while the expression is in places immature and faulty, the conception is fine and much more carefully worked out than has yet been admitted. In this instance, the meaning is not difficult to trace, and it is of sufficient importance to justify the stress laid upon the matter. Keats appears to be telling us something of what led up to his realisation of the wonderful beauty of real poetry. As a child, he had, no doubt, often heard or read, and probably learned poems or parts of poems. He had, perhaps, amused his sister in her baby days by repeating these to her, just as in later days he wrote nonsense rhymes for her. He may, very likely, have imitated verses of the great poets, picking up a feather malted from one of their poems, a chip from their workshop, and making out of it a little craft of his own. In later days he would sit pondering on the way in which life is mirrored in such works, and it was here, on ground long familiar to him, in poems that he had known from childhood, that there came to him, suddenly and unexpectedly, a vision of the indescribable beauty that inspires all really great poetry. It is not an uncommon experience. Many of us have learned in childhood poems that have given us some degree of pleasure at the time, and then, in later years, we have one day found in them a charm of form and meaning that we never realised before. There is granted to us a glimpse of the beauty of poetry in itself, and we share, in some small degree, in the experience of Keats. But it is only a very few who are capable of seeing it as he saw it, or in whom it can arouse such an intensity of wonder and delight that it inspires them to make an endymion of it. The Third, On New Ground In contrast with the familiarity of the ground on which endymion had met with these experiences, we find that the spot where the third revelation came to him is not spoken of as one of his earlier haunts. This time he has been hurling his lance from place to place and following at chance. Line 929 Till at last it struck through some young trees and fell into a brook which led him to a cave. And the description suggests that all this part of the forest was new to him. It may well have been the case that after Keats had twice been surprised by the recognition of some unearthly beauty in poems that had for a long time been familiar to him, he began to read more widely, to wander at random through the realms of gold, 
and that in some place that he hit upon almost by chance there came to him again and more clearly than before the sense of the surpassing loveliness to be met with in poetry a solitary experience two a more obvious point than the one dealt with above is the solitary character of these experiences on each occasion endymion was wandering quite alone when the revelation came to him and this suggests one aspect of the experience through which the poet must pass the inspirations that come to him the visions of beauty that he sees are intensely personal and individual experiences even if his day should be spent in a crowded city in his poetic life no one can go with him he may tell the story of it to others but they can never share it the vision is for him alone the revelations progressive three a point that is well worked out is the progressive character of these experiences endymion's attention was first of all caught by a sudden blossoming of flowers in a familiar spot he pondered over it until his head was dizzy and distraught line 565 at length he fell asleep and then there came the vision first of the moon she did soar so passionately bright my dazzled soul commingling with her argent spheres did roll through clear and cloudy line 593 and when she vanished there came in her place one who seemed the high perfection of all sweetness line 607 yet it was but a dream line 574 on the second occasion he was sitting near the well when a cloudy cupid flew by and he was just about to follow it when he saw the same bright face he tasted in his sleep smiling in the clear well line 895 there is no suggestion this time of the distraction and confusion of mind that marked the former occasion and moreover the vision appears to him not when he is asleep but in his waking hours and is followed by indications of the divine favour that are unmistakable the third appearance comes when he is consciously longing for the presence of her who has become his ideal and it shows a further advance in the fact that on this occasion he hears a voice calling to him and is granted a fuller and more intimate revelation than before thus keats has represented to us the way in which the poet gradually comes to a fuller realization of what it is that he is called to do he sees more and more clearly the beauty of the ideal that is set before him and is filled more and more with a longing to attain it it will be seen that a further stage in the realization of the ideal is represented in the next book book two lines 714 to 827 while a final consummation is reached at the end of the poem four between these times of exaltation endymion sank into a mood of deep depression that gradually subsided into a quiet state of resignation as he made up his mind to put aside all thoughts of the ideal that seemed so impossible of attainment and tried to resume his ordinary life and then this contentment would be broken up by a fresh vision this alternation between joyous hope and black despair is of course characteristic of the artistic temperament and is one of the penalties that the poet has to pay 
for the sensitiveness without which he could not be a poet. But one cannot help suspecting that personal reminiscence played a large part in this phase of the story. Is Keats describing his own experience? And this brings us to the consideration of a question that cannot but arise as one endeavours to follow out the meaning of this poem. The question, that is, as to how far the experiences of Endymion represent the training and development of the poet in general, and how far they correspond to the personal experiences of Keats. The question is one that can never be fully answered. Keats himself is the only one who could have told us how far he was drawing upon memories of what he himself had gone through, and he has not spoken. Of his letters that have come down to us, only twenty-four belong to the period before he had finished Endymion, and these throw no direct and but little indirect light on the problem. On the other hand, a little consideration serves to show that in dealing with such a theme, he must inevitably have drawn mainly upon his own experience. The only poet whose mind he could know with sufficient intimacy was himself. He was indeed friendly, in varying degrees, with Lee Hunt, with Shelley, and with Wordsworth, and it is quite possible that in the many talks that Keats enjoyed with one or another of these, talks of which a few faint echoes have reached our ears, some ideas may have been thrown up that have been built into the structure of Endymion. Be this as it may, one can hardly doubt that the story of Endymion's effort to win the prize that was set before him is drawn, in the main, from the recollections that filled the mind of Keats of his own hopes and doubts and difficulties, and there are some parts of the story in which the identification is clear. The resemblance between the Endymion of the days before the visions, when his delight was in the exercise of physical energy, and Keats in his earlier school days, when he excelled in all active exercises, and was not literary, has already been pointed out. And the parallel is the more striking, because there is no reason whatever to suppose that it was in the mind of Mr. Holmes when he wrote down his recollection of Keats as he knew him at the age of fourteen. No less striking is the evidence of the change that came over Keats in the course of the next five or six years. Henry Stevens, one of the medical students who shared a room with him in London, has described his point of view in those days. Poetry was, to his mind, the zenith of all his aspirations, the only thing worthy of the attention of superior minds, so he thought. All other pursuits were mean and tame. He had no idea of fame or greatness, but as it was connected with the pursuits of poetry or the attainment of poetical excellence. If the free and active life of Endymion in his earlier days is a reflection of the way in which Keats felt when he was fourteen, it is equally clear that the visions of divine beauty that came to Endymion afterwards, and the rapture that they aroused in him, represent the feelings with regard to poetry and poetic fame that, at this later period, dominated the mind of Keats. Of the intervening period there is scarcely any record, but one can feel little doubt that when we read the story of the way in which Endymion passed from the heights of enthusiasm to the depths of depression, and of the efforts that he made to recover a normal and reasonable frame of mind, we are learning of the inner experiences of the poet. Between the time of his leaving school, about August 1811, and the day when he dropped his medical studies 
and finally made up his mind to devote himself to poetry, about March 1817, he must have passed through many periods of doubt and uncertainty, of longing to reach the ideal that he saw shining before him, of despair at the poor prospects of attaining to it when he realised the feebleness of his own early efforts. He must have decided more than once to put it all on one side and to fall in with the wishes of those of his friends who were urging him to complete his medical studies. No more, says Endymion to Peona, will I count over, link by link, my chain of grief, no longer strive to find a half-forgetfulness in mountain wind blustering about my ears. I, thou shalt see, dearest of sisters, what my life shall be, what a calm round of hours shall make my days. There is a paley flame of hope that plays where'er I look, but yet I'll say tis naught, and here I bid it die. Have I not caught already a more healthy countenance? Line 978 It is only in the pages of Endymion that the record of these perplexities and struggles may be found, but a late echo of them survives in a letter to Lee Hunt, written in May 1817, soon after he had begun to work at this poem. I vow that I have been down in the mouth lately at this work. The last two days, however, I have felt more confident. I have asked myself so often why I should be a poet more than other men, seeing how great a thing it is, how great things are to be gained by it, what a thing to be in the mouth of fame, that at last the idea has grown so monstrously beyond my seeming power of attainment that the other day I nearly consented myself to drop into a phaeton. A wider meaning. It would, however, be a mistake to push this identification too far. At certain points in the story, both in this book and later, it seems clear that Keats is drawing largely upon the memory of his own experiences in order to make his sketch more vivid and true. But it would misrepresent the purpose of the poem to suppose that Endymion regularly stands for Keats himself. He embodies a more general conception, and his story is intended to picture for us the kind of experience through which any poet who is worthy of the name must pass, while at times he represents a still wider idea, that of the spirit of the new Romanticism. Peona It remains to consider briefly the character of Peona and her significance in the story. She is represented as being devotedly attached to Endymion. When the trouble of his mind so weighed upon him that he lost all consciousness of those about him, it was she who led him away and soothed him into a refreshing sleep. She watched over him while he slept, and when he awoke she sang to soothe him, and then begged him to tell her what it was that had so strangely altered his character. But when he had told her of his wonderful dream, she quite failed to understand how such an experience could affect him so deeply. Is this the cause, this all? Yet it is strange and sad, alas, the one who through this middle earth should pass, most like a sojourning demigod, and have his name upon the harp-string, should achieve no higher bard than simple maidenhood, singing alone and fearfully. Line 721 How light must dreams themselves be, seeing they're more slight than the mere nothing that engenders them. Then, 
Wherefore sully the entrusted gem of high and noble life with thoughts so sick? Why pierce high-fronted honour to the quick for nothing but a dream? Line 754. Endymion replied with some energy, but even after he had told her of the two later revelations, Fiona gave no sign that she was able to enter into his feelings, and her influence so far prevailed that he was ready, at any rate for the moment, to return to the normal life of healthy activity from which he had so strangely been drawn away. Fiona stands for a type of person whom we all know and admire. Simple, practical, unimaginative, but at the same time unselfish and affectionate. They form a most wholesome element in the scheme of life. We owe them more than we can tell. They have no glimpse of the meaning or power of lofty and far-away ideals. They believe in doing the practical duty that lies close at hand. They rejoice when they can draw the unpractical idealist down to the wholesome level of a quiet everyday life. But when they fail to do this, they are no less ready to hover round with ministering cheerfulness. They may at times express a gentle surprise at, or even disapproval of, the wild unreasonableness of the dreamer. But the best of them, in whose number Fiona may be reckoned, do not worry him, but, accepting the matter as being beyond their ken, retire into silent sympathy and practical helpfulness. Georgiana Keats One cannot tell whether Keats had any actual person in mind in drawing the portrait of Fiona. There is an interesting passage in a letter that he wrote to his friend Bailey, not long after Endymion had appeared, in which he speaks of his brother George's wife. They had recently been married and were on the point of leaving for America. I had known my sister-in-law some time before she was my sister, and was very fond of her. I like her better and better. She is the most disinterested woman I ever knew. That is to say, she goes beyond degree in it. To see an entirely disinterested girl, quite happy, is the most pleasant and extraordinary thing in the world. Women must want imagination, and they may thank God for it. One may perhaps infer that Georgiana Keats had sat as an unconscious model for some of the features of Peona, but there is a passage in another letter, written to these young married people after they had settled in America, that puts the matter in a different light. Your content in each other is a delight to me which I cannot express. The moon is now shining full and brilliant. She is the same to me in matter what you are to me in spirit. If you were here, my dear sister, I could not pronounce the words which I write to you from a distance. I have a tenderness for you and an admiration which I feel to be as great and more chaste than I have for any woman in the world. You will mention Fanny, his sister. Her character is not formed. Her identity does not press upon me as yours does. This suggests that some of the qualities that appear in the sketch of Diana were derived from the warm affection and admiration that Keats felt for Georgiana. His sister was at this time only fourteen years of age, and while the tone of warm affection in which Endymion speaks to Peona corresponds well with that pervading the really delightful letters that Keats both at this time and afterwards wrote to her, we can hardly suppose that her opinion as to the wisdom or otherwise of his devoting himself to the life of a poet was very pronounced. 
it is not of course to be supposed that either georgiana or fanny is at all closely represented in the character of peona but it may well be the case as the passages quoted from his letters suggest that the affectionate regard that keats entertained for them was at the back of his mind in some parts of the story and influenced what he wrote fanny keats it is perhaps worth noting that mr locker lampson who met fanny many years later in rome she was married to senor valentin llanos a spanish man of letters found her both in the matter of her affection for her brother john and her failure to understand him singularly like the peona of the poem whilst i was in rome mr seven introduced me to monsieur and madame valentin de llanos a kindly couple he was a spaniard lean silent dusky and literary the author of don esteban and sandoval she was fat blonde and lymphatic and both were elderly she was john keats sister i had a good deal of talk with her or rather at her for she was not very responsive i was disappointed for i remember that my sprightliness made her yawn she seemed inert and had nothing to tell me of her wizard brother of whom she spoke as a mystery with a vague admiration but a genuine affection she was simple and natural i believe she is a very worthy woman end of section one